There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with today, Steve Molina taking Greg's spot and myself, Colin Andrews. Steve, good to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks, Colin, for having me. Last week's episode, we wrapped up our Back to Basics mini-series. Greg and I were focusing on market timing, stock picking, and market cycles. And it seems like we're always in a market cycle just by the definition of a cycle. And today we're going to spend some time digging into some of that. Today joining us is Paul Eidelman. Paul is the Director, Chief Investment Strategist for Russell Investments, and he's joining us from beautiful Seattle, Washington. So welcome to the show, Paul. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Colin. Well, it's great to have you on. It's been a few years since we saw your face in Calgary, but hope to see you back here sometime in the near future. When this, Yeah, definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, this global pandemic is behind us at some point. So Steve, why don't you kick us off? Thanks, Paul, for joining us. Let's just jump in. Tell us your story. How'd you end up where you got to today? My career has had a bit of an arc to it. I actually started out as an aspiring economist. So I started my professional career at the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 2007. And it was an unusual time to join the U.S. Central Bank. It was right on the cusp of the biggest financial crisis in decades. And I think that was a really fascinating experience for me to be around really smart people like Chairman Ben Bernanke and a lot of the professional economists at the Federal Reserve trying to do our best to kind of save the U.S. economy from what looked to be a really, really bad financial disaster and a lot of strains on the banking system. So I think that was a fascinating experience for me. A lot of sort of strong foundations around macroeconomics, economic theory, central banking. And then from there, I've transitioned into the private sector as an economist and investment strategist. So I spent three or four years in Manhattan working for JP Morgan. I was a senior economist in the private bank there, helping their ultra high net worth clients think about the economic outlook, how that could inform sort of prudent asset allocation. And then over the last sort of six years or so, I've been at Russell Investments. And there I've increasingly transitioned from just doing economics to now also being responsible for our investment strategy in North America. So not only thinking about the economic health, but what is our views on the US equity market, interest rate strategy, and a whole range of things. So that's my arc. It's been a progression of things, but gradually from economics a bit more into the private sector and markets. Okay. Steve, I got to jump in here for a sec real quick. Did something happen between 2007 and 2009 while you were at the U.S. Federal Reserve? Yeah, I think so. It was only just a couple of months after I joined, the U.S. housing market blew up and we had one of the biggest financial crises in the history of the United States, at least since- Oh, right, right, right. Now it's ringing a bell now. It's ringing a bell now. (laughs) You had to go back to those dark days. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Steve. 
Well, and I'm curious to hear what the difference is from the Federal Reserve days of 2007, 2008 to where it is today with the current crisis or current pandemic that everyone's trying to deal with. Like, what are your thoughts about that, Paul? I think there's some similarities and there's some differences. In terms of the similarities, the Fed has been faced by some really big challenges. Both the global financial crisis and the COVID crisis were so severe that the Fed's normal toolkit was not enough to support the economy. So in both cases, they cut interest rates, at least the overnight interest rate, all the way down to zero. But that wasn't enough. And so in the GFC in 2008, 2009, for the first time, Ben Bernanke started sort of this novel new experimental monetary policy framework where they started buying assets and specifically treasury securities on a really large scale as well with the hope of not just keeping short-term interest rates at zero to support the economy, but also influencing longer-term interest rates lower as well to help boost consumer activity and business borrowing, et cetera. And so that was really experimental and unique and a bit scary for a lot of people a decade ago. But because COVID was so dramatic in terms of shutting down entire industries in the US and global economy in the span of just a couple of months, the Fed had to kind of rely on a lot of those same experimental tools again this time around. So if anything, I think their response was stronger this time for good reason. So not only did they cut interest rates to zero, and not only did they launch a quantitative easing program again, but the scale of it was unlimited in scope. So Powell said, I will buy as many treasury securities as it takes to make sure markets are functioning here. That was a really historic and important backstop for financial markets that were really struggling in the spring of 2020. And they even went a little bit further. And I think the innovation this time around was extending the support beyond sort of safe fixed income securities and actually buying corporate bonds. And that was an extra really, I think, historic and unusual effort to make sure that the borrowing costs for businesses were manageable during a time that a lot of companies had their revenues dropped to near zero. And so I think at the highest level, what the Fed has had to do is everything they possibly could to make sure that households and businesses could survive to the other side of the pandemic when we had vaccines become available and the economy could start to return to normal again. And I think they've been pretty successful with that, frankly. In the United States, for example, the economy, if you're measuring it by real GDP, is back slightly above pre-COVID levels again. So an almost complete recovery in the United States. There's still a lot of people that I think Chairman Powell would like to get re-engaged in the labor market again. So they're going to stay accommodative for a while here. But it was an awful recession and it's been an impressive and an awesome recovery in terms of the speed of growth subsequent to those lockdowns. And so I think that's the difference is unlike the GFC in 2008 to 2009, we had a pretty slow recovery because households had to manage down their balance sheets. They had a lot of debt that they had to work through and economic performance was pretty poor. Today, we're seeing some of the strongest economic growth rates in 30 or 40 years. And so the Fed's accommodative now, but the big question is, well, when are we going to have to start to change tack because we don't want to generate too much strength and overheating and inflation. And so that transition is happening a little bit faster this time around. 
Well, listen, I probably jumped ahead in my questions, but <laughs> but if I was, was to a good back, question, though. yeah, just you mentioning you being part of the Federal Reserve back then. But if I back up for a second, let me ask you this: as director and chief investment strategist for Russell, what does that day look like for you? It's a varied day, but my primary responsibility is to make sure that we know what is happening in the United States and global economy and what those potential risks and opportunities might mean for our professional portfolio managers. So it's staying on top of incoming data, the new news, what that might mean in terms of risks. So keeping tabs on what's happening with the coronavirus, keeping tabs on what's happening with corporate earnings growth, what Federal Reserve officials might be saying, and looking for where there might be opportunities or areas that the market could be getting things wrong. And that's a really hard thing to do. We're actually pretty humble about those kinds of activities. And some of the kind of signals and modeling that we look at the most is around other people's behavior. If we're seeing everyone else panicked, that tends to be a pretty interesting signal for us to want to step in and buy and be investors. Whereas in contrast, if we're seeing everyone euphoric and very optimistic about the outlook, sometimes we might want to lean in the other direction. So it's very much a mix of sort of market psychology, economic data, market data, and looking for things that might be at an extreme that we can take advantage of, knowing that that's a very hard thing to get right because markets are pretty efficient, even if they're not perfectly efficient. Actually, I have a comment on that. So this morning when I was leaving the house, my wife asked me, hey, what do you do in your podcast on this week? Because she will often ask me that. And I said, oh, we're interviewing this fellow named Paul Eidelman from Russell Investments. And she said, well, what does he do? I said, well, he's the director, chief investment strategist for Russell Investments. And she said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, <laughs> I guess he sort of follows inflation rates, interest rates, economic headlines, and does forecasting based around that. And she said to me, and I had a quarter, is that a full-time job? <laughs> I said, yeah, I think it's actually a pretty important one. <laughs> you know, and I'm not knocking her, but she's a social worker and her day is way different than what your day would be. So can you maybe expand a little bit on that, how the headlines that you are tracking these days, because inflation is one that has come up a lot recently. Can you talk a little bit about that? Inflation is a really big issue right now. It's been incredibly strong and I think surprisingly strong in the last four months or so in the United States and in a couple of the developed markets. In the US, for example, we're seeing core inflation rates up around four and a half percent, which, I mean, it's a big number. It might not sound like a lot, but central banks want to see 2% inflation. We're getting almost double their objectives. And that can be a challenge for a lot of investors. It's really important for retirees, because if you have a lot of inflation and you hold fixed income investments, that inflation can erode your purchasing power over time. It's a big issue. And it's been something I've been quite focused on as sort of an economist and a strategist. What we've seen sort of under the surface of the data is a lot of that inflationary strength has been driven by just a couple of categories. So Part of my job is, what does this inflation mean? Is it noise or is it a signal that we need to take seriously? And because the inflation 
is so concentrated in just a couple of categories, we think it's more likely than not to be a short-term phenomenon than something that is likely to be sticky. So the kinds of inflation that we're seeing, just to try to bring that to life a little bit, is really in things like automobiles. So because of all these stimulus efforts from the governments, stimulus checks, et cetera, people have been going out and buying new cars. That's sort of the cool thing to do. And they've been doing that at the same time that global supply chains are disrupted. There's a shortage of semiconductors globally. So automobile manufacturers haven't been able to produce new cars and everyone wants to buy them at the same time. And so you have too much demand for the available supply of cars on the market. Inflation sort of conceptually is an equilibrating mechanism to make sure that demand and supply are in balance. So when there's too much demand for the available supply, you get inflation. That's what's happening in the automobile market. It's because of this really strong recovery and because of these supply chain bottlenecks, but it's probably not the kind of inflation that is likely to be long lasting. We're seeing globally a lot of interest for companies to invest in new semiconductor plants, because if you can, you're going to make a lot of money selling semiconductors to car manufacturers. And that sort of profit maximizing carrot, if you will, is a big sort of factor behind why these things should come back into balance over time. The other areas of inflation are more around the pandemic and the crisis and recovery out of it. And so it's things like airfare prices and hotel prices. And if you think back to the spring of 2020, no one was traveling. Demand for air travel totally collapsed. And the airliners had absolutely no pricing power at all. They basically couldn't give away a free flight if they tried. And because the vaccines have been quite effective, we're seeing today now air travel get back close to pre-COVID levels again. And with that recovery in demand, they've had a recovery in their pricing power again. And that's inflation. It's prices recovering from something that was near zero to something a little bit more normal again. But as we get back closer and closer to normal again, that really big recovery in demand is unlikely to be something that should persist year after year after year. So I guess that's a really long way of saying we really try to go under the hood of what's happening with the data releases, understand what it means for the outlook. And in this specific case, we think it's more likely than not that inflation, which is really strong right now, should moderate back down to something more normal over the next one to two years. And that has important implications for how we might think about investing. There's this buzzword that keeps floating around every time I pull up a headline or a news article, and it always references inflation and things being transitory. Would you say that's what's going on right now in the world? Our outlook is that inflation is transitory. And basically what that means is these, call it 4 or 5% inflation numbers, are unlikely to be the new normal. Our outlook, which is a, it's an uncertain one. I mean, this is I've been through a couple of recessions, but this is my first pandemic. As <laughs> it's all of our first pandemics. <laughs> <laughs> we never know exactly what the future holds, but our sort of models are telling us that it's more likely than not that inflation will move back down to 2% or slightly less than that in the case of the United States, because a lot of it's in these concentrated categories that are unlikely to be persistent. And so that's what sort of transitory means to me. It has important implications. If that's right, it could mean that central banks could keep rates very low for maybe a little bit longer. 
Well, actually, I've had a lot of people ask me about inflation these days, of course, because they see those same headlines. And I kind of point out that, look, inflation in March of 2020, wasn't it like zero? Or, I mean, there was no inflation. So if it's 4.5% today or 4% or whatever that number is, but it was zero 18 months ago, what's the true level of inflation? Is that a fair question? I mean, it's a really important point. So in 2020, we actually had three months in a row of deflation. So slightly negative or declines in prices on a sequential basis. And that was because the economy was collapsing and there was no demand for anything. And that set sort of a low level for the index. And so you fast forward a year from then, and we're seeing one of the strongest recoveries ever. And similar to what I was talking about with airfares and hotels, demand bouncing back to something a little bit more normal again. And so a lot of that inflation is sort of a simple recovery phenomenon, and it doesn't tell me that much about sort of the medium to longer term outlook. It's sort of more cyclical in nature. Steve, what do you got for us? Well, I was just going to ask, you've touched a little bit on it. What's the lay of the land going forward for the economy and the global stock market? You've talked a little about this great recovery. What should investors look like for the next short-term, long-term, I guess, next within the next five years? Yeah, I think there is still some runway here for the economy and financial markets. And some of that is just where we are in the business cycle. We're just over a year removed from a recession. And even though the recovery has been impressive, there's still not really any signs of the kinds of macroeconomic imbalances that would let you think about a recession being more likely than normal. And these things are really hard to forecast, but those kinds of big risks for markets tend to happen when the labor market is fully recovered, when businesses are investing and over-investing and getting sort of greedy about the outlook, and when debt levels in the economy are really high. And so today, we've certainly recovered a long way, but in the United States, for example, there's still 6 million fewer people employed than there were before the coronavirus. So it seems like the labor market still has a decent ways to go here before those kinds of risks start emerging. Business investment, we think, can be quite strong here. Businesses are really confident about the outlook. There was actually a survey recently from the conference board that showed CEOs are more confident than they've ever been in the outlook because of how strong the profits recovery has been. And so that should allow some pretty good investment going forward, but we're nowhere near where the US or global economy was in the late 1990s when there's just way too much investment and overinvestment in technology and in capital goods. Again, I think a little bit of room to go there. And I think what all that means to me is if recession risks are a little bit lower than normal, that makes it more likely that I can earn a positive equity risk premium. So one of the big things that hurts you as an equity investor is when the business cycle ends, when you have a recession, you have a drawdown of 20, 30, 40, or 50%. And so I wouldn't say those risks are zero. Forecasting the future is really, really hard. But relative to maybe a normal recession risk of being between, call it 15 and 20% in any given year, we think those risks are closer to 10%. That's a marginal view, but investing is all about decision-making under uncertainty. And if we think those big downside risks are maybe a little bit smaller than normal, having some equity allocations could make sense today. 
I like that quote. Investing is all about decision-making during things of uncertainty. Is that what you said? Something like that? Yeah. Let me ask you this thing of uncertainty. The 10-year U.S. bond yields have been getting a lot of press recently, maybe in the last 60 days or so. And I know they moved from something like 1.3 to 1.4, up to 1.6, and now they're at about 1.24 or something like that. So in that period, it's gone basically from 1.3 to 1.24. It doesn't sound like a lot. Yet it has definitely moved that market and this forecasted interest rate movements. Can you talk about that a little bit? There's been sort of two waves in the treasury market recently. Treasury yields rose pretty significantly through the early part of 2021 because people transitioned from being worried about the pandemic to excited about the recovery and particularly excited about the prospect of aggressive stimulus from the U.S. government after Biden won the presidency and the Democrats won the House and the Senate. And so that unlocked the possibility of aggressive spending legislation boosting the U.S. economic growth profile. And so under that idea of stronger growth, Treasury yields rose, which is sort of the normal market reaction. But subsequent to that, there have been a couple of risks, and it's been hard to totally unpack what has happened over the last couple of months. But we've had, I think, a reassessment of what's happening with the coronavirus, where the Delta variant has really spread aggressively around the world, and infections and unfortunately, more severe outcomes have started to rise again, even in countries that are highly vaccinated. And so I think that's created some concern that really exceptional growth that people were thinking about might have some sort of downside risks associated with it. That was, I think, one of the factors behind yield stepping back down. The other one, somewhat perversely, was with the Fed starting to talk about the possibility of taking away some of its accommodation. I think investors have gotten a little bit worried that they might not allow as much inflation or overheating or economic strength as they previously thought. And that sort of reassessment around central bank policy maybe was sort of the second big catalyst. But I think it's easier to tell stories after the fact than to know some of these things in advance. I think those are probably the two big waves is excitement about economic strength and then maybe a little bit of dose of humility and uncertainty as the outlook has gotten a little bit of cloudier here over the last couple of months. So if you are a retail investor or I guess institutional investor, what do you do during times like this? Because there's a lot of concern that, well, as the economy recovers, does the party stop and they start raising interest rates? How does a retail investor, or I guess just an investor in general, what are your thoughts How do you prepare for this going forward? I think the most important principle is to always have a plan. So forecasting the future is hard and having a strategic asset allocation, potentially with the help of a professional advisor that is well-suited to help you meet your desired outcomes under a range of possible economic and market outcomes and forecasts is probably the most important starting point. From my personal perspective with where we are today, I think staying invested is maybe the second most important principle, because if you're just sitting in cash, central banks are forcing you to have a zero nominal return on that cash right now. And we've just talked about inflation being 
an issue and a risk. And if you're getting a zero return on cash and inflation's four or 5%, your spending power on that cash balance at a bank is gradually eroding over time. In that kind of environment, I think it's really important to be invested, whether it's in the equity market or I think even better, a diversified multi-asset portfolio that can weather a range of outcomes, but getting that extra return to help you overcome sort of the inflation hurdle is probably more important than ever right now with interest rates near zero. I think we'll all agree with that, that it's better to be invested, stay invested. Because one of the things we run into, Paul, is people will say things like, when times are bad, say, well, I need to get out because I'm scared. And we say, well, okay, so you're, you're going to sell out. And then what? I said, well, I'll wait for things to get better and then I'll, I'll buy back in. I say, so let me understand this. You're going to sell at a lower price now with the plan of buying back in at a higher price later. Does that make sense? And maybe I can let you answer that question. It's not a good way to be successful over the long term. There it is. I knew we were talking the truth. (laughs) Selling low and and buying high is a good way to lower your return outcome. We think of anything, the opposite is better. If you can, if you have the liquidity and ability when everyone else is panicked and when prices are cratering, that's the best time to step in and buy and take advantage of other people's behavioral mistakes and constraints and, and challenges during those circumstances. It's usually when sort of things are the darkest that the return opportunities are the greatest. But on that behavioral side, do you think people are actually capable in general of investing during bad times? It is really, really hard to do, particularly by yourself. And even for us as professional investors, we've built sort of processes around us to help us avoid making those same mistakes. And one of the ones that's, I think, most important for our philosophy is we have an index that tracks market psychology for us. It's a range of different measures from how investors are positioned, surveys of investor psychology, how bullish and bearish people are. And no single indicator is very good, but the sort of composite that we get from all of that information is actually quite helpful for us. So I can be sitting there in March of 2020, not having a clue about what the pandemic means for the economic outlook. But if I know that investors by and large are more panicked than we've ever seen in the history of our index, that's an important ballast for me to say, well, hey, hang on. If things start going right here, the return potential could actually be pretty significant. And and those kinds of insights are important for us, not only to avoid behavioral mistakes, but also to try to take advantage of some of those rare opportunities when they do present themselves. So I think it is a really huge challenge, particularly for individuals that maybe don't have as many resources as we do in the profession. Well, that's good. I think we have time for our speed round, Steve. I think, I think so. Paul, yep. you, you've done all the heavy lifting. We appreciate <laughs> that and appreciate your insight on all those things, inflation, interest rates, et cetera. But Steve's going to start you with the really important part of the podcast, and that's the speed round. Yeah. So we've got the speed round that we ask. We go through every podcast, Paul, and there's no right or wrong answers to us, but judgment aside. Well, we will judge, just not <laughs> while we're on the call right now. Exactly. Judge later. Let's go through this. What do you do for fun when you're not working? I like to go hiking. It's a beautiful 
place in the Pacific Northwest. And I've also taken up during COVID a side hobby of some woodworking and I'm not very good at it, but I've been <laughs> building some furniture for my house and I don't know, I wouldn't call it high quality furniture, but it, it hasn't fallen apart when I've sat on it yet. So I'd say it's a moderate <laughs> success. <laughs> That's a win. Any books you're reading right now? I'm a little bit of a sci-fi guy. So there's a new book called Project Hail Mary from this guy, Andy Weir. I don't know how to say his last name, but he wrote The Martian. So I'm, okay. I'm pretty into some of his stuff and other books. And I've just started that. So I can't really talk about the story, but I'm pretty pumped about it. Any shows you're currently watching? You binge anything? Yeah, you binge anything? We've been watching some Bosch on Amazon Prime, which is a detective fiction story. Pretty good. I've been enjoying it. My wife really likes it. And I'll usually fall asleep halfway through an episode and she keeps plowing ahead. So (laughs) she probably has a better read on it than I do. But that's probably the top of the list for us right now. Well, now I'm going to get into a couple of Canadian specific questions because our audience is primarily Canadian. Although the podcast does get some play around the rest of the world, I'm not sure why some places there are people that listen to it, but how do you spell Saskatchewan? Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, nobody's ever gotten it right, so there's no pressure. Saskatchewan. Oh, no. Take a stab. Do you want to just plow ahead and try it? Plow ahead. S-A-S-C-H. Oh, no, no, no. no, no, (laughs) (laughs) He had the first three right. That was close. No spelling B for you. (laughs) Now, seeing that you live in the Pacific Northwest, it must get kind of chilly there during the winter months, right? Yep. Do you ever wear a toque? I know what a toque is. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. I guarantee you. I bet you've (laughs) worn one in the last 12 months. That like a woolly hat? It's a woolly hat with a, yeah, that's right. A woolly hat or beanie as it's called in places like Santa Monica. Nice. <laughs> so, but we call it a toque. I've always wanted to go ice fishing, which is a much bigger thing in Canada, but I haven't, haven't been able to do it yet. I'm Canadian and I've never been ice fishing. So <laughs> I know that it is a thing that people do, but I'm sure, I don't know, Steve, have you ever been ice fishing? I've never been ice fishing. So Paul, if you end up going, you're going to have to come back and tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just an American's image of what people in Canada. (laughs) Well, you're not that far from Canada, right? Like your short drive. Much neighbors. Yeah. So when you do go to Canada, do you ever wear a bunny hug when you're traveling through Western Canada? Bunny hook. Bunny hug. (laughs) Probably not. I guarantee you've worn one at some point, Paul. It's (laughs) a. Do you have a hooded sweatshirt that you wear ever? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So. Honestly, nobody ever gets those questions. I'll stop it there. But a bunny hug in Saskatchewan is a hooded sweatshirt. That's what it's called. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from, but that's what it is. So listen, you did pretty well. You did pretty well. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. I hope to see you again in Calgary sometime soon, like we talked about at the beginning. And any last words before we let you go? No, thanks so much for having me. And hopefully I'll do better on the rapid fire next time. Well, well, in all fairness, like I said, those are very Canadiana specific questions that if you asked me a few things about Manhattan, I would probably do not very well myself. So I'll have those ready for you next time. Yeah. (laughs) All right. And thanks to everybody for joining us. Steve, thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Colin. Thanks again, Paul. And just a reminder to the listeners, please leave us a rating on Apple podcast or wherever you listen to this podcast. And we'll see you next time, or not see you, but you'll hear us next time when we get into something probably not as exciting as this one, but hopefully pretty good nonetheless. All right. Thanks, Paul. Thanks.
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.